Shalom. This is Gary Duroshinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy this message. Now, I I wanted to turn our attention to Luke chapter 10 because as I was thinking about what had occurred over in the west part of Los Angeles in our connection with Celebrate Israel, I was uh, particularly impressed with this passage. Let me read it to you. Luke chapter 10, verse 21. It says, At that time, Yeshua, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then he turned to his disciples and he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. This is an amazing passage, really, um, because it's the only place, among other things, it's the only place in all of the Brit Hadashah where we are told that Yeshua rejoice, that his rejoicing is fully described for us. It's very interesting, isn't it? It says, at this time, Yeshua, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said. And this is the only place where we read of that. And it's not to say that Yeshua is not joyful. It's only to say this is the only place where his joy is described as an historical event or moment in his life. It's also interesting because you have the entirety of the triunity of God that is uh, referred to here as well. Can we just lower this just a tad there, Scott? Um, you see this here. First of all, in verse 21, you have reference to Messiah, Yeshua. You have reference to the Spirit of God. And you have reference to the Father. In fact, if you look at this passage carefully, you'll see four times the Father is mentioned. Verse 21, I praise you, Father. Verse 21, yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. Verse 22, all things have been committed to me by my Father. And uh, lastly, no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son. There's this undue emphasis on the triunity of God, the very interaction of the persons of the God, a very complex sort of thing. And as I said, this is the only place where Yeshua is described as rejoicing, but we know that he rejoiced in many other places. We know that he exhibited joy and gladness. In fact, in some instances, perhaps some would say too much so. 
Because if you look at Matthew chapter 11, you don't have to turn there, but it's there that Yeshua speaks of the inability of the Jewish people and the Jewish leaders to respond to the revelation God was giving. And God gave revelation through John. And he came sort of as, well, he came as a prophet of Israel, the last of the prophets that God would send to the Jewish people as a nation. And John came with a message of impending blessing, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, but also of judgment. In that if we do not respond to this blessing, he said, the judgment of God will fall. And so because of his sort of outsider Um, approach or his outsider demeanor. It was thought of John that he was one who, and Yeshua describes him, as one who came sort of mournfully. And he says, you know, if we played a mournful tune or a funeral dirge, you revolted against that. You didn't listen to that. You didn't respond to that. And if we came with great joy and celebration as Messiah came and reached out to all segments of Israel society, they accused Yeshua of being a uh, wine-bibber and a drunkard. They saw that he was so interactive with the community, and he participated in many feasts and many dinners and many parties that were thrown for him, that they said, listen, he's a wine-bibber and a drunkard. They saw him rejoicing, and they saw it negatively in that respect. But nevertheless, he was a joyful person. It says in John chapter 15, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. In John 17, he says, I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. The writer to the Hebrews says, Let us fix our eyes on Yeshua, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And it's not just the Hebrew, or I should say, the Brit Hadashah that speaks of God in a joyful way. There are all kinds of passages that speak of the joy of the Lord. For example, in Psalm 16, which is a passage that is... Uh, speaks specifically of Messiah, but it has relevance to all who would heed its words. But in Psalm 16, it says, You have made known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. I love the idea that God's blessings are seen as pleasurable, as joyful, And he says that these are pathways to the joy of God. In Isaiah 62, when it speaks of the messianic age, when the kingdom would dawn, it says, as a young man marries a maiden, so will your sons marry you. Isaiah is talking about the relationship of the nation of Israel to the living God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he says, in a similar way that a young man is joyful in marrying a young woman, so, God, so Isaiah depicts God as being joyful in marrying Israel. He goes on to say, as a bridegroom, that is God, rejoices over her, his bride, that is the nation of Israel, so will your God rejoice over you. I think that's really telling that God is not only joyful, but he rejoices over us. He looks upon us and he looks upon us with joy. Even with all of our weaknesses, all of our foibles, even, dare I say it, 
even all of our sin, because he seeks to forgive us, to cleanse us, and to restore us unto himself. In in Jeremiah, it says, I will rejoice in doing them good and will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and my soul. Isn't that an interesting expression? I will rejoice with all of my heart and soul. Speaking about God replanting Israel, regathering Israel into her homeland. And in doing so, he speaks about rejoicing over Israel that is being restored in their proper relationship in the land and their proper relationship to God. Zephaniah says, the Lord your God is with you. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. And he will rejoice over you with singing. That's what it says of God's relationship to Israel. That his joy over Israel will be of such greatness, such intensity, that it says God himself will sing over his people. Now what is true of Israel that is yet to occur when she's established in her land under her Messiah and the kingdom dawns is true of you and I who already know Messiah today. We have the great privilege of having the fullness of the joy of Messiah in our life. And therefore, we have the great opportunity to reflect on God rejoicing over us. So when I thought, I thought of this passage for this reason. If you look at the passage carefully, look at verse 21. It says, at that time, Yeshua, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father. Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned, revealed them to these children. But look at verse 21. At that time, and that's the key phrase, isn't it? At what time did Yeshua become full of the Holy Spirit, which then, and this is how I understand the phrase, full of the Holy Spirit, and then led him, empowered him, sort of nudged him into a moment of joyful exclamation. Because the rest of this passage is really a prayer of thanksgiving and a blessing he bestows. Verse 22, really, or 21, is a prayer. I praise you, Father. He's praying. And when we get down to verse 23, he's blessing. Blessed are the eyes that see and the ears that hear. So he's moved to both thank the Lord and give him praise and to bless those who are following him. What has so motivated him to do this? What has occurred? The Holy Spirit, sort of like, you know, it's really hard to describe all of this, but it says he was full of joy through the Holy Spirit. It's almost like the Holy Spirit took over, you know? I think we've all at some moment have had this kind of experience where we're worshiping or praying or reflecting or thinking or serving And deep inside, all of a sudden, the Spirit of God sort of wells up within us. There's a joy in terms of serving God. There's a joy in terms of worshiping Him. There's a joy in terms of experiencing something that He has for us, whatever it might be. It doesn't happen all the time, and we don't see that happening in Yeshua's life all the time. But here is a moment, the only moment, that we read of this great joy. And so the thought that came to me was, what prompted it? What was the experience that occurred? And you only need to go back a few verses to verse 17. It tells us. Because it's there that it says, The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the the demons submit to us in your name. So now what's going on here? Well, if we go back a little further into the chapter, you'll find that Yeshua on this occasion sent out 72 of his followers. 
We oftentimes think of Yeshua having 12 followers, but he had many more than that. Here's a case where there are 72 that are particularly sent out by him. The 12 were like an inner core of his followers. And of those 12, there was even an inner, inner core. There was Peter, uh, James, and John, the inner three. So you've got this sort of this unfolding uh, number of disciples, You've got those three that he particularly homes in on. You've got the remaining nine or so that he is uh, focusing little less, but also a great deal of attention to. And now you've got 72, and then there are the multitudes that follow him, but do not necessarily follow him everywhere he goes. But here in chapter 10, Luke records for us that he took 72, divided them up into pairs, and he sent them out. It says in verse... Uh, verse 3, the, he says, he told them to pray. The harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. He says, go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag of sandals. Do not greet anyone on the road. Go, don't be slowed down. There's an urgency in what Yeshua is telling them. Keep in mind that this is probably less than a year to go and he's going to be giving his life a ransom for many. There's not a lot more time left uh, in terms of his earthly ministry. So now he sends them out with a sense of urgency. Don't worry about what you will eat. Don't worry about where you will stay. Don't stop and talk with anyone. Just go. And when you are welcomed, stay there. And from that launching pad, Bring the message of the good news that Messiah has come to those immediate environs. And that's what they do. They do something else, too. They not only bring the message, they begin to bring a demonstration of the message in the healing and in the changed lives that begin to occur. People who are sick are being healed. The Lord uses them. He says in verse 8, heal the sick who are there. Tell them the kingdom of God is near to you. That's the message twice. The kingdom of God is near. And the nearness of the kingdom is communicated in the message and also in the things they do. What's interesting is, if you look at verse 17, they say to Yeshua that they rejoice that the demons submit to us. Now, there's nothing in this passage where Yeshua says, I want you to take on the demons. He never says anything to them about spiritual forces. He only tells them to preach the kingdom of God do good to them, heal them. They come back, and they don't say, hey, we preached the message. They don't say we heal. They say we rejoice that we had power over the demons. And no doubt, the demons were, these evil fallen spirits were restraining people from hearing the message so they wouldn't believe. And it was also causing some physical turmoil in their lives and perhaps other kinds of turmoil as well. But when the disciples came with the message of the kingdom of God and the display of that kingdom in their midst, they were being delivered from all of that oppression. But it's interesting what they say. They rejoiced. This is the focus of joy. And so the question is, what is it that we ought to be rejoicing over? The question is, how can we rejoice when things aren't going so well as well? Because Yeshua knows he's going to his death. The point here is that they rejoiced over the demonstration of their power in the name of the Lord. But the Lord tells them that is not what they ought to be rejoicing over. 
What they ought to be rejoicing over, verse 28, is do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And that's what made me think of what transpired last week in the Celebrate Israel Festival. And it also made me think that we have to be very careful how we even look at our ministry and what we rejoice over. Because as somebody that's been in ministry for a lot of years, since the mid-70s, I can tell you over and over again that so often in my own mind and in many other people's minds that the evaluation of a ministry, and I'm not saying we shouldn't think about these things, they should be involved, but we have to be careful that we don't think our ministry is successful because it grows so big or so big. We can rejoice over the wrong things, good things. It's a good thing that the demons were subjected and were laid low and were defeated. But Yeshua is mindful. That's not the thing to really be rejoicing over. The thing to rejoice over is when people come into a living, vital relationship with the Lord. When they grow in him spiritually or they come to know him initially. And that's what was so exciting to me about Celebrate Israel, that we could be there, demonstrate before ten to 15,000 Jewish people and others that you can be Jewish and have a living, vital relationship with the living God. And the only way that's possible is through the Messiah of Israel. That's what we had opportunity to do. And we, had to, we had opportunity to do it in a subtle way, which I think is also important. Because we were able to say that we had no, quote-unquote, ulterior motives. We were there to celebrate Israel. And we were there to help Israel because we had a representative of volunteers for Israel. And if you want to know why we were there and why we want to help Israel is because the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the living God of the universe, the only God that exists, loves Israel and loves the people whom he has chosen for himself. That's why we're there. And out of that love, he's provided them with redemption, a redemption that not only is limited to them, but is for the whole world. And that's why he said to Abraham, in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. But make no mistake about it, it is in you that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And so what an opportunity to rejoice over the things that the Lord tells us are the things we ought to rejoice over. That someone's name might have been, and, in, and apparently so, be written in, uh, in heaven. Now, let me just share a couple of things here with respect to Yeshua's prayer. While we often and rightly so think of Yeshua as a suffering servant and a man of sorrows, it's also right and good to think of him as one of joy and rejoicing. That's why the writer to the Hebrews says that he went to the cross rejoicing because he knew that it was in fulfillment of God's plan and that it would result in people coming to faith. And the question that I had to ask myself is, given that Yeshua is able to rejoice so wonderfully, knowing that his life was going to come to an end and the suffering that he would endure would be of the greatest of magnitude, nevertheless, he was able to rejoice. It made me think, Can we find joy in the midst of our own suffering and in the midst of our own struggles? And so these are my thoughts. First of all, in his prayer, Yeshua tells us that he found joy in the sovereign purposes of God. Look at verse 21. He says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. He's speaking about God as the sovereign Lord. 
When he says Lord over heaven and earth, he's in control of all things. There's nothing in heaven and earth that he's not Lord over, that he's not in control of. Not only that, look what this one who is in control of all things, he can hide things from people if he so chooses, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned. And he can reveal things if he so chooses, and he revealed them to little children. And not only that, but he tells us that in his sovereign purpose, it says, yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. This was a delight to the Lord. In fact, if you will, turn over to Luke chapter 12, one of my favorite verses in Scripture. And I'll never forget when I first heard it, I was in a Christian rock band, and it was early in my walk with the Lord when I was some 18 years old or so. And we had an incre- what I thought was an incredible band. It was an incredible band because all of us were into various different kinds of music and we sort of put it together. So we had a fellow playing piano, no, no uh, criticism of you, Scott, but who played the piano who was a Midwesterner. And we never quite, all of the rest of us were from the East Coast. We never could quite figure him out, you know. From the Midwest, what's he doing here? But there he was, wonderful piano player who played with us. We had a guitar player who was an Italian fellow who was in love with Eric Clapton. We had a, I played drums. We had a lead singer whose name was, and it tells it all, his name was Ike McKinnon. And he was an African-American fella, and he had a wonderful, wonderful voice. Before he started playing with us and became a believer, he was in a soul band called the Filet of Soul. And he is, he is presently, all these guys, by the way, all of us, I, I don't know what, ha- I never knew what happened to the guy from the Midwest who played piano. Nobody understands piano players. But um, all the other fellas, myself, Ike, and Charlie, who was a guitar player, we all w- were in ministry. I mean, Ike is uh, in a full gospel church somewhere in Hackensack, New Jersey. Charlie is in a Nazarene church over in Paramus, New Jersey. And I've just been roaming the countryside, you know. But the three of us all were involved, uh, all involved in ministry. And I'll never forget one evening we were playing and we were sharing the good news. And we had so many great opportunities as I, as I think back. Um, and Ike stood up. And as he was sharing, he said, he read these words. Do not be afraid, though it was a different translation, but do not be afraid, little flock, um, Luke 12, 32. Do not be afraid, little flock, for it is your father's uh, good pleasure. That's how it, it, it reads. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Isn't that a great passage? You know? I mean, there's always so much to fear. There's always so much to, to be concerned about. And yet, Yeshua tells us, you know, don't be afraid. Because it's the Father's good pleasure uh, to give you the kingdom. The, Hebrew, the Greek word here, by the way, it means God's sovereign saving purposes. You know? uh, his good pleasure means the purposes of God in bringing redemption. Peter says, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And look what this passage says. It tells us that the Lord in his sovereign good pleasure has hidden things from the wise and learned. But he's revealed them to little children. Now, this doesn't mean that there are no wise or learned individuals who've come to know the Lord. There are quite a few who have. But it is to say that there is nothing in and of ourselves that can gain God's favor. It all rests on his good pleasure pleasure 
and his grace toward us. And whether you are wise or learned, all of those, and the contrast is not, be, is not between being educated and uneducated. It's about being prideful or being humble is what he means by learned and well-educated or wise and learned. You have to understand in the first century, the wise and learned were the whom? The religious leaders of Israel. And what was characteristic of our leaders in that time and perhaps at other times was a sense of pride and arrogance. The rabbis, even in the first century, said, if you want to gain wealth, you go north to Galilee, away from where the temple and where the religious leadership is. But if you want to gain wisdom, knowledge, knowledge about God, then they say, come south. And I like the direct come. It doesn't mean go, come where we are. What Yeshua is addressing is the sense that Pride and arrogance will close the doors of opportunity to us. That is the opportunity, I don't mean for success, but the opportunity to hear God's voice and to see him as he really is. The contrast is between being humble and being prideful. And that's why if you look at this word, little children, it's a unique word in the Greek. It's the word napioi. It's a word for infants. It's a word for those that are utterly dependent upon their parents for their sustenance. It's one that is, it means to say those that are crying out for his grace. And so the napioi are those that realize that in and of ourselves, we cannot get it right with God to whom we are accountable. And therefore, we are in need of him. And so the Lord, after seeing the 72 come back, And hearing of individuals who've had their names now written in heaven, thanks the Lord for his grace towards those that he's opened their eyes and hearts and minds to, that they would know his father. And in knowing his father, they would, of course, know him. But this is not only about Messiah giving thanks for for the father's sovereign purposes, but look at verse 22. He goes on to say, and here's this interconnection between the Father and the Messiah. Verse 22, he says, all things have committed to me by my Father. If the first section focuses on the sovereign purposes of God, and remember the Lord's Prayer, he's going to teach it to them in another next chapter. He says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come and thy will be done. His sovereign purposes. And so Yeshua gives thanks that his sovereign purpose has come to fruition in the saving of some. But the second thing he talks about and he gives thanks for is for the superior power that Messiah exhibits. Look at verse 22. All things have, committed to, have been committed to me by my Father. Look at this. No one can know the Father except those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Now that's powerful. He says, all things have been committed to me. So how many things is that? That's everything that is, has been committed to Messiah. This is not unlike what Yeshua says at the end of his ministry, or at least the end of the recording in the Gospel of Matthew. All authority and power has been given unto me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Here he's already telling us what will be declared, that all things are committed to me. And therefore, all authority and power is in his hands. And to such a degree that 
He can choose to reveal himself and open our hearts and open our minds. Now, if you're thinking like I was thinking when I first started reading this passage about the power of God here, the power of Messiah to have power over all things and to uh, make himself known, to reveal them, you think, now, wait a minute. Is there any choice on our part involved? I mean, is this all about what he does and has nothing to do with us? But I want just to show you something. If you turn back to Matthew's account, because we have a parallel passage here. In Matthew chapter 11, in verse 25, but even if you go back to verse 20 through 24, this also, those words are also recorded in Luke chapter 10. So in Matthew 11, verses 20 through 24, is, is also restated in Luke 10, verses 13 through 16 or so. But if you look at verse 25, here is what we just read in Luke 10, 21. It says, at that time, Yeshua said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned, revealed them to the Napioi, little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. Now, Matthew doesn't record for us. He's full of joy. But he is recording for us the very same prayer that's being recited in Luke chapter 10. But now listen, he goes on to say, All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. We just read that in Luke chapter 10. But now listen to verse 28. Even after Messiah has said, Only those whom he chooses to reveal himself to will know him. Yet in verse 28, he says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. And yet the invitation goes out to everyone. So there's always this balance between God's sovereign purposes and our personal responsibility. So while, and by the way, that Matthew 11 is probably the greatest invitation that's provided in all the scripture. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So the invitation goes out. And if we're responsive to it, we will have our names written in heaven. And what's more, the Lord will be given further cause to rejoice. One last point. Not only do we read of Yeshua giving thanks because of God's sovereign purpose, and not only do we see him then making this statement in prayer about his own uh, supreme power, but then look at verse 23. He then turns to his disciples in the midst of his prayer. I think this is really telling. In the midst of his prayer, he's not so heavenly minded that he's not thinking about his disciples and those whom he has chosen and those whom are following him. He turns to them and he says privately, this is not true for everyone, but it's true for them and for those like them who follow Yeshua. And he pronounces a blessing on them. And the blessing is one of great superior privilege. Look what he says, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but not, did not see it. And to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. So he's telling us that 
those that are responsive to Messiah and those responsive to the Father and those that receive the blessings of eternal life, he says, are blessed above all. In fact, I would say this is a great blessing pronounced on the twelve, but the blessing that rests on us is even greater. He says to them that you are seeing and hearing what many kings and prophets wanted to see and hear but didn't hear. And so you think of men like Abraham. So a veiled sense of this. Isaiah, even though this great passage, Isaiah 53, he did not see the fruition of his words. Or you think of the great Psalms that David wrote of the Messiah, and yet those Psalms did not come into reality until Messiah came. But yet there are still many more things that the disciples here did not see, that you and I see, because they did not have the full scope of the revelation that's found in Scripture. We know much more about him now through their ministry, of course, but much more than what they knew at this moment when Yeshua was pronouncing this blessing upon them. The fact of the matter is that Messiah's blessing rests upon us as well. And so here's what I would just like to leave with you, because we all struggle with things, even as Yeshua was a man of sorrows and a suffering servant. And yet the Spirit of God filled him with joy by means of his Spirit that resulted in praise and thanksgiving and blessing on others. And so here's what uh, I would say. We need to when we encounter various aspects in our life, we need to trust in God's sovereign purposes. He has a plan in place. We don't see that whole plan. It's only when we look back on it that we say, oh, God's hand was in this. And sometimes it can take years. Sometimes it can just take years. But God is sovereign, and he's leading us and he's guiding us, even as he tells us here. We need to trust in him. Not only that, but we need to rely upon our Messiah's great power. He has the power, he had the power to turn our hearts. And he has the power to provide for all of our needs. And then lastly, we need to exhibit joy. Because we need to rejoice in the special privileges that the Lord has granted to us. The greatest of which is that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. For all of eternity. I know, and as, as we all know, we come into periods of struggle and sorrow and difficulties. And we wish we didn't have to face them and deal with them. Or be victimized by them. But our names are written in the Lamb's book of life for all of eternity. I mean, that's just mind-boggling. And the Lord, you can imagine, reaches out his hands and he says, Blessed are you for your eyes see. And blessed are you because your ears have heard. And blessed are you because for all of eternity we will dwell with him. So let's pray. Our God and Father, we are grateful for your goodness and your kindness. Thank you for including us among that which gives you great pleasure. Thank you, Father, for rejoicing over us, even though as we look at ourselves, there's not a whole lot of reason to rejoice over us. 
But Lord, you rejoice because of what you're doing and because of what Messiah has provided. So Lord, may we, like the 72, go forth as you send us to bring forth your truth. And may we rejoice, not in the accomplishments, perhaps, but in the fact that lives are changed and transformed and names are written in heaven for all of eternity. And thus, Father, we have a part in enlarging your kingdom and seeing that many others come to know you as Savior. So we praise you, our Lord. We glorify you and we thank you for your goodness and your kindness to us. For we pray in Yeshua's name. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.